Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Afterglow by Jane Castle. This was published in 2004 and is the second book in the Ghost Hunters series. And you may remember that we, re we reviewed After Dark, the first book in the Ghost Hunters series, about two weeks ago. I wasn't the biggest fan. Yeah. So, uh, reminder, Jane Castle is the paranormal pen name of Jane Ann Krentz, which is the contemporary pen name of Amanda Quick, who is our historical, sort of an old school historical author. She's still writing, uh, but in her historical romance, guys, I think we generally enjoy her books. Yeah. So, this is our foray into her paranormal series. And I'm going to be honest with our listeners. This is probably the last Jane Castle we will be reviewing for the podcast. <laughs> What's this book about, Lane? All right, so the book jacket. Life is complicated for Lydia Smith. She's working at a tacky, third-rate museum, Shrimpton's House of Ancient Horrors, trying to salvage her career in para-archaeology and dating the most dangerous man in town. Just when she thinks she might be getting things under control, she stumbles over a dead body and discovers that her lover has a secret past that could get him killed. Just to top it off, there's trouble brewing underground in the eerie, glowing green passageways of the dead city. Descending into these twisting catacombs, Lydia will learn just what it's like to put her heart and life on the line. This jacket is bad. It's a bad jacket. It also sounds a lot like the jacket to the first book, <laughs> except way shorter. <laughs> I'm interested. Oh, sorry, I've got to grab it again. I just want to know: is it the same? No. Oh my gosh. Only difference is the final sentence, and is way better on this one. Okay, so the final sentence on. This book jacket is descending into these twisting catacombs. Lydia will learn just what it's like to put her heart and life on the line. In this one, it is, of course, all of these problems pale in comparison to the most pressing issue. Lydia has been invited to the Restoration Ball, and she hasn't got a thing to wear. Way better! So much better! <laughs> so so much says better. this one, she pulled the actual physical book off her bookshelf and compared it to the jacket we found online. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. It's... Way better. Way better. Way better. Okay, so issues with the jacket. Again, the jacket uses words that are only explicable in-universe without any context. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, it's all just generic romance, suspense, sci-fi mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, and it's all about Lydia. You know? Correct. It, it actually reminds me a lot of the first book jacket. Because the same, they say the same thing about Emmett on that one as they do on this one, which is basically just that he's the most dangerous man in town. Which, is that how you describe him? I don't know. How would you describe him, Lane? Uh, powerful. The most enigmatic, powerful man in well, town. Well, I'd say he's powerful and her diametric opposite. Yes, In he is. terms of the type of power they wield. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's do our random number and then talk a little bit about Lane. Mm -hmm. So as you know, every episode we generate a random number and then we write a summary based on that number. And for this episode, that number is 
seven. So here's my dust bunnies, cults, and psychics. Oh my! <laughs> Who's the psychic? They're just psychics because they have psychic powers. Both of them are psychics. Okay. <laughs> what do you What do you want me to say? Psychic resonators. Also, that was more than seven words. <laughs> You're really we're limited here. All I right. was limited. What's yours? What's better than conversation? Insta marriage of convenience. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Oh gosh. All right. So tropes and I argued a. I made the argument in the first episode that After Dark had not been a romance novel. Yes. I do think this one is more romance tropey. Yeah. I still think the mystery sucked. That's that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. I said, I think. (laughs) So the biggest trope of the book is a romance trope here. Yes, it is the marriage of convenience trope. Um, And in the world of harmony, marriage of convenience is not just a concept, but a literal legal status. Yes, it's a literal legal status. They basically describe it as a way to make your affair official. I think it's more akin, honestly, to like a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Like it's putting a label on it and agreeing to exclusivity. But it's, and it is for a year, which makes it a little bit different, but it has no like long-term implication. Yeah. I mean, it just hit me that if we want to compare it to historical romance, it's a Scottish hand fasting. Because if you get pregnant, it converts into a permanent marriage. But was a hand fasting considered temporary? Yeah. It was for a year. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. And if you get pregnant, then it became a marriage. Okay. So like, that's what it is. Yeah. Come to think of it. So this is a Scottish hand fasting in historical romance terminology, not a marriage of convenience, which would be a real marriage where the motivations were mercenary more than romantic. Right. Exactly. This is more of a, I think we get along. Let's make this a formal relationship. And if we are still into each other in a year, maybe we'll make, we'll continue it basically. Right. Um, so... There is a big makeover sequence. There is. Personally, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really fun. Overall, I liked it. Okay. I have minor quibbles with the character of Charles, who is the dress's designer during the makeover sequence. Yes. I think there's an opportunity to talk about that in more depth later. Absolutely. There is an animal bond. So she has a dust bunny who's her... Familiar? <laughs> yes, it is. He's like her familiar. So dust bunnies are like, they're, they seem to be the only native animal on Harmony because everything else is 20th century American, right? I mean, there's no real discussion of animal life. How am I supposed to comment on that? So anyway, dust bunnies have six legs. They have four eyes and they look like dryer lint. Like that, I'm literally describing to you how Jane Castle describes them. That's what dust bunnies look like. It's very weird, you guys. But so they're super cute. They're basically animate dryer lint things that kind of float around, except they also are mean when they're riled. And have very sharp teeth. Yep. What else are they? What's their function in like 
the ecosystem? I don't have any answers for you. What do they eat? Pretzels. They have. They do seem to have some kind of psychic powers. And they, yeah, they they seem attuned to the general psychic energy that everyone else is attuned to. Have an ability to manipulate or confront it. But more importantly, in this book, it is implied that they can form psychic bonds with an individual human. Correct. All right. She's kidnapped by a cult. She is. Which, at least in some of the modern crime romance I grew up reading, Mm -hmm. very common. All right. Incredibly common. So she is kidnapped by a cult. And their marriage night does happen to be interrupted by an attack. A psychic attack. (laughs) But it's not this... It's not interrupted by a psychic attack. It's the fact that their marriage night was interrupted. Right. That part's general. That, that part is a general trope. The fact that it was a ghost that was summoned, <laughs> specific to this text. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was the, like one of the best scenes of the entire book. Completely agree. There's also a couple of tropes that I think are more modern romance, so I'm less familiar with them, so I'm not quite sure how to perfectly articulate it. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of fights over, like, where they're going to live. Yeah. And, like, when they get in an argument, she goes home to her own place rather than their place. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of romance. Like, not sleeping over when you've, like, basically lived there is a big moment of conflict. Yes. that In the historical romance world, that's you have separate suites. But usually you sleep in the same suite. But then you have an, a fight and... She sleeps in the Duchess's suite rather than Duke's suite. Yeah, but I think even because we don't typically gravitate toward marriage in crisis. Yeah. That's not something we... It's true. We deal with a lot. <laughs> it's true. All right. Again, I think this book was pretty fun. and I, I honestly think it was pretty well crafted. I liked it a lot. I still like it. I think it's the better of the two in the duology for sure. Yeah, I, I think... My quibbles with the writing style in the first one still stand. This is just not my cup of tea. But I do agree that this book, especially from the romantic perspective, has a better arc. Yeah. So it starts in medias res, like in the middle of the action. She gets a phone call at night and he's like, dead body, we got to take care of it. Yeah. So... The one thing, so the only reason you would have to read the first book, I don't think you have to read the first book, but the first book does set up that they're in a relationship. So most of the time in a romance novel, when they meet at the beginning, they either haven't met or they've met before, but they're not in a relationship unless you're in a marriage in crisis kind of thing. And in this one, it is an interesting start to a romance because they're in an established dating relationship. Yeah, I I think if you are reading this as a romance, you have to read the first book. Sure. You don't have the background with Tamara Wyatt being his ex without reading the first book, at least like the full depth of that relationship. You don't, they make lip service to it, but you don't truly understand her reluctance to be with a hunter. Mm -hmm. Like I really think their relationship building requires both books. But in terms of the inherent mystery like, the only thing that I feel like it's left lingering after the first book that gets solved in this one is what happened during her last weekend. And exactly. And I feel like this book does do enough explaining of that again that if you'd never read the first book, you wouldn't be lacking there. Yeah. I, I think this book does do a good job of tying up any loose ends that were 
left open by the first book. Mm -hmm. Namely, her last weekend and his relationship with um, Wyatt. Mm -hmm. the, the, the boss of the, of the Ghost Hunter Guild. Hold on. I just got to roll my eyes further back in my head. <laughs> Mercer. Mercer Wyatt. Uh, you may remember... So, spoilers for the first book. Sorry, guys. I mean, we always do that with series. Yes. But if you, even if you listen to our episode, you will know that in the first book, Mercer calls London son mm -hmm. all the time. And you get the feeling that there's something there, but she doesn't really go into detail at all. And in this book, you learn that, in fact, Mercer Wyatt is Emmett London's <laughs> Father. I'm sorry, the names just hit me there. I love them. They're funny. Yeah, lots of first names in those. Like, they're all first names that can double as last names. Yes. Yeah. So I'm like, what is his first name? London or Emmett? His first name is Emmett. Yes. Okay. We're checking. Um, so... I think their relationship, while a more prominent part of this book, still isn't the point of this book. Okay. So I still struggle. But I don't necessarily feel like this is a romance novel. I think it's more of one than the first book was. Inarguably, Meg was absolutely right about that. But I still don't feel like the resolution of their romance is the point or given that much page time. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I really do. I'm going to say this about every Castle Krentz quick book that we discuss. I just like that they are, their conflict is never between the two of them. The conflicts in these books are not interpersonal conflicts, but rather they are external and they work together to solve them and their relationship building comes as a result of solving a mystery together. I mean, or whatever. Arguably, the primary conflict of this book is the mystery. Right. But there is interpersonal conflict. There is. They're not on the same page about what they want to do in terms of marriage or what they well, see as the long term of this relationship. They, but because the focus isn't on that, that sort of gets resolved as an aside. And I don't necessarily feel like it ever really got worked through. Well, they are on the same page. They're just not talking about it. But they're sort of not. Like, she's got some <laughs> legitimate concerns about how they're going to make things work. Yeah. And that never gets discussed. It's like, basically, I feel like the end of the first book is we're really into each other and we've decided to see where things are going to go for now. But, like, love isn't enough to, like, just push aside all these concerns. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the thesis of this book is, eh, love is enough. <laughs> and you just sort of don't know how they get from point A to point B. All right. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about... Aren't we doing that? Let's talk about how they get into their marriage of convenience okay, right. lane. Because they do enter into a marriage of convenience, which is a recognized social institution in harmony. <laughs> and all right. So let's take it back a step. Let's talk very briefly about the world of Harmony and what's going on on it. So again, on the world of Harmony, humans now have psychic powers that they use by, through resonating with Amber to do specific things. So like their electricity comes from resonating with Amber. 
driving a car, they resonated with some amber, right? And the stronger you are at psychic abilities, the more specific your psychic abilities get. So she is a para, she is a tangler, a paraarchaeologist, which means she can detangle <laughs> these traps. Oh my God. The more I try to describe it, Layman is just staring at me too. She's making me do the entire explanation. I'm letting Meg just process this. So aliens on this planet left these psychic traps that humans can interact with. And she can defuse these traps, basically. He is a ghost hunter, which means that he can create and also diffuse these balls of energy that can zap you and send you into a coma, basically. Right? Yep. Phew. On this world, there are these things called ghost hunter guilds. And that's where all the ghost hunters get together. He was the boss of one of the guilds. And his father, his natural father, um, Mercer, is um, the boss in the new town where they're living. Yes. Okay. And, and it is not common knowledge. No. That he is Mercer Wyatt's son. So just to provide a little bit of context here, it's a minor spoiler, but as Meg said, it was pretty much revealed in the first book. Um, his mother had an affair with Mercer Wyatt while married to the man everyone knows is Emmett London's father. Yeah. And then his father immediately died. Yep. Before he was born. Mm-hmm. So the impression of the world is that he's the son of this deceased man whose last name was London. Only Mercer Wyatt, his mother, and he know about the affair and that the timing makes it so that only Mercer could possibly be his father. Yep. Phew. All right. So the Ghost Hunter Guilds sort of run the town that they're in. You get the impression of. they're like old school mobs exactly. in like the 70s and 80s in New Jersey and New York. Like, yes. Not necessarily like right between legitimate and criminal. Exactly. Like there are people who are associated who are in politics and then there are people who are associated who are laundering money. Yeah. Emmett was the boss of the Ghost Hunter Guild in a different town mm-hmm. and he like totally legitimized it basically. Right. It's like I'm going to make this a legitimate business we're going to bring this into the whatever century they are, the modern day. And um, once he did that, he's like, okay, I I did what I set out to do with the guild. Now I'm leaving. You know, I want to do something else with my life. Right. His dad, though, is like, no, you need to be with the guild. Once a guildsman, always a guildsman, blah, blah, blah. Right. His dad's also looking for a successor. Correct. And so there's a very obvious answer as far as he's concerned. Right. So, okay, now we have all that backstory out of the way. How does this book start? Mercer Wyatt gets shot. Yeah. And he, the first person he calls is Emmett London. Basically to set up a temporary succession plan. Yeah. He's like, okay, you need to take over as boss of the Cadence Guild. Because even if you don't want it permanently, I can't risk someone else coming in in a temporary capacity and then refusing to leave. And, of course, Lydia has major issues with this because she doesn't trust the guild. With good reason. She Totally good reason. And she's also like, you know, I've only ever lived in Cadence. The guild, to me, is 
as Lane said, the mafia. It's a good old boys institution. Yeah. She's like, I don't want my boyfriend to be associated with it, but she's got to accept it. Yeah. Then, oh my God, I'm sorry. This needs so much explaining. To and, and then once, then she learns that there are guild wife rights. It's really hard to say that. Guild wife rights. Yeah, that part was frustrating. So guild wife rights mean that if someone challenges the guild boss for his bosshood, the guild wife can say, nope, I don't think so. But only if she's physically there to say it. Only if she's there to say it. So she learns about this, and so she basically is like, okay, I love this man. I may not agree with all of his decisions, but I want to protect him. So that means we need to get married. And or, because if he if we get married, I can prevent him from dueling. Right. I mean, this is very historical romance in a way. <laughs> so she's like, if we get married, then I can prevent him from this duel and like getting hurt or possibly dying. Okay. So so that is why they get married. Right. So she finds out about this and her response is to announce to the media that they're in fact engaged in getting married that very day. And she calls him and she's like, oh no, <laughs> Emmett. I, it's a very I love Lucy. Yes. <laughs> I made a big mistake. And now you have to marry me in three hours. Bye. And he's, like, very excited about it because he's like, yes, I wasn't sure how to bring up marriage with Lydia because she's been so distressful of it. But now she wants to get married to me. This is awesome. He didn't ask enough questions as far as I'm concerned in that moment. He didn't. But <laughs> he also didn't care because he's like, I'm getting what I want, which is getting married to Lydia. True. They are not talking to each other. No. About their deep-seated desires. Mind you, she found out about guild wife rights and the whole concept of how guild councils work from someone else. Mm -hmm. He did not share it with her. Correct. She found out about what the moment was that she had to show up to assert her rights from someone else by happenstance. I mean, he didn't want her to do it. He had a whole other plan. He doesn't want guild wife rights. No, they are not talking to each other, but at all. She goes to investigate the crime scene on her own on mm -hmm. several occasions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I know it's ridiculous, and I know that I talk about how communication is key and it's so important. I still liked it here. I thought it was just very fun. I would have been fine with that in a vacuum. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, th I thought it was pretty hilarious that she... I, I think to a degree, the moment was supposed to be kind of like drunk mouth, sober mind, except yeah. panicked. Mouth, sober mind. Except also not, because she had the idea anyway. But she was, like, freaking out. She was like, oh, shit, the only way that I can prevent him from needing to, like, potentially die in a duel yeah. is by marrying him. Any and all qualms she had about that as a potential option completely disappeared, and yes. she just said off the cuff, well, then I'm marrying him. If the only way to protect him is I'm marrying him, we're getting married, we're in love, we're engaged. Yep. So that, and I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. And then they do... Have a wedding night. And the other thing you have to know about ghost hunters is when they burn amber. 
They get really aroused. Nick, what's burning amber? It's when you have to use your psychic abilities. You channel it through the amber, and you your psychic abilities are so strong that they detune the amber flame. Okay, so on their wedding night, because of this ghost fight, that someone sends a ghost to his house for some, you know. He burns amber. And he's all like, oh, I wanted this wedding night to be perfect, and now I'm, like, out of control. And she's like, I can handle you. <laughs> right. And it's um very, very sexy, actually. Yeah, that was fine. It's also the last sex scene in the book. It's very sexy. It's about um, 40% in. And it's the last sex scene in the book. Uh, but, like, especially for Jane Ann Krenz slash Amanda Quick slash Jane Castle, pretty explicit. It's not super explicit. Yeah, it, it's hard for me because I think there's two kind of factors to it sexiness in my mind there's the actual like how sexy is this versus fade to black like how open door yeah and then there's the like emotional attachment i have to the characters and the belief that like the sex means something yeah and i feel like there was still so much conflict between them in that moment Mm -hmm. that it's hard for that to be the only moment even if it is explicit by her standards you wanted more yeah yeah which i get you know but uh, just the whole Basically, for me, the whole setup and the whole payoff, I thought was great. Yeah, and it is fun to have him, like, I'm going to be the master of my own urges. And her being like, okay, but you don't have to be in this moment. The, it's it's very much, it's, it's a very romance novel thing with the alpha who's like, I'm in control. And then he's like, no, I'm not. And then. Okay, so like, I want you to okay. pay. It's a very supernatural romance novel thing. Well, I think it's even like historical romance thing. How many Stephanie Lawrence are there where they have to drop the reins? True, <laughs> and I'm even thinking about Tall Duke and Dangerous, mm-hmm. where he like takes his temper out on stuff. Yeah. And he doesn't even understand how the difference between stuff and people. Right. All right. No, you're good point. Fair. You win. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's always a competition. Always a competition. <laughs> you win. You're right. Anyway, there are a few other things I, I like about the book. I really like how Tamara gets more depth. In the first book, she's very cardboard cutout, you know, gold digger, yeah. other woman. And in this book, although she retains some of those features, she... I, I don't know. I, I really like that she gets a little bit more complexity. I, I think you see a moment of true sincerity. Yeah. And... You also see her ambition in a new light. Yes. Yeah. And I think both of those things were for the better. Exactly. So I like that. And I do like that you figure out the end, you know, what happened with her lost weekend. I didn't get that at all. (laughs) I'm just glad that you figured out what happened and that she was in the right the whole time. Spoiler alert. She was in the right. The ghost hunters were big jerks. But they weren't ghost hunters. They were in terms of their powers, and yes, they were affiliated with the guild, but they were individuals operating outside of the guild with their own... Mo- they were two bad eggs. It right. wasn't systemic. Right. Right. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So here's my big... Tell me. When do we spoilers? 
this book was written in 2002. This we can we're sorry guys, we're spoiling it, and it was in 2004. Excuse me, but it's being spoiled. Okay. So as Meg said, this book opens with the attempted assassination of Mercer Wyatt. Uh huh. And he the first phone call he makes is to Emmett. He wants Emmett to take over so he doesn't have to risk a coup Mm -hmm. as a result of his temporary replacement. But he says something to Emmett that makes Emmett feel, I think rationally, Mm -hmm. that this is a personal matter for Mercer Wyatt, that it's not a guild thing, that Emmett is not in danger, that he just needs Emmett to like buy the time and he will deal with his attempted murderer once he is well. It was 100% a guild thing. It was totally a guild thing. It was thing. not personal at all. Mm-mm. You don't even know for sure that, like, it becomes clear Mercer didn't even see who shot him. Nope. What was that? I feel like Jane and Chris forgot. She may have forgotten. Halfway, or Jane Castle or whatever her name is, forgot halfway through the book that she'd set this up to be a different thing she, and then just didn't go back and fix it. She may have forgotten because I'm going to admit I also forgot that. Okay. So, like, I'm waiting the whole time for this, like, explanation of why Mercer handled his attempted assassination the way he did. Mm-hmm. It was 100% a guilt thing. Yeah. And it was absolutely in danger the whole time. What the fuck? Um, second thing. The whole plot of her lost weekend, and ultimately this book, hinges on her familiar psychic connection with Fuzz the Dust Bunny. Yes. Okay. I have a lot of questions about that. <laughs> okay. And... I'm fine. I find the world building where uh, she just, like, develops it and then doesn't explain it largely very charming. Yeah. Except when it enables the author to not think through the conflict Mm -hmm. that they can just pull out of their back pocket. Oh, I forgot to mention (laughs) that Uh uh, Dust Bunnies and people can find these bonds, and that's actually the whole way this happens. So I don't have to worry about the fact that I didn't actually come up with a resolution to this conflict because I can change the world's rules at any given moment. Yeah. And that's kind of what the resolution is in terms of her last weekend. And I found it very frustrating and unsatisfying. It's kind of the, I mean, you find out what happened, you find out how she got saved and basically to make a spoiler, even more spoilery, the denouement of this book is how the Lost Weekend was also resolved. So basically, she reenacts the Lost Weekend. Yeah. And she's like, oh, now I remember everything. And Fuzz, and you were there. And you were there. And Fuzz was there the whole time. Yeah. And she wasn't mind-wrecked by what had happened. She was mind-wrecked in her attempt to flee. Right. I don't know. I had very few issues with this book. All right. Spoiler twist. No, just full even spoiler. The reason The Lost Weekend happened is she got targeted by a cult. Yeah, she got targeted by a cult. To be the person who attempted to detangle this big trap. Why her? Good question. Never really answered. No, it was answered because they actually tried several tanglers and all the other tanglers just died, but she didn't die. But that doesn't explain why they didn't pick her to begin with the first time they abducted her. No, they did. They picked her the first time they abducted her, but then she didn't die. Right. She was the first one they abducted. All the other people who died had willingly joined the cult. It was explained because she she was like the first one they abducted and then she like lived through it and they've been trying to get her back. Why was she the the first one they abducted? Because she was really good. Okay. There were a lot of really good people in the department. 
She would, look, there are a lot of departments. I'm she just, happened to be the first person they picked. Right. Look, I admit that there are a few issues with um, serendipity in this book. <laughs> Coincidence. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to deny that. Okay. But it was explained. Right. And then how did she and Fuzz meet? How did they form a psychic bond? What is it about someone that attracts them to a dust bunny? Where do you find a dust bunny? You find a dust bunny in the alien ruins, I guess. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I found the entire ending a little bit like, I forgot to worry about this. Here we go. I had I had no problems with it. I was like, hey, you know, sounds good to me. All right. Look, I I I admit she was on the spot when all these new amazing discoveries happened, right? In the first book it was Dreamstone. Mm-hmm. In this book it's a a book. Mm-hmm. An alien book. Yeah. But you know what? I don't care. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk about content warnings, content notes, trigger warnings, whatever. There is a cult. There are several kidnappings and several deaths or faking deaths. Right. Things like that in this book. So be aware. It's sci-fi crime mystery. Like, I think it's pretty par for the course. I don't think anything's particularly graphic. No. Or no. well explained. Or like mentally traumatizing. For But just know it exists as a general concept. Yeah. So the other thing, she, as Meg mentioned... Gets a makeover, and as the book jacket that's clearly better mentioned, has to get ready for this big ball and doesn't have anything to wear. And she solves that dilemma by going to a very famous designer and ends up selecting a uh, dress made by her the designer's protege, right? Rather than the designer herself, which is seen as a very bold and daring choice. And I felt like the use of that character, the designer himself, was a little regressive. Mm-hmm. Um, one because it's a man. Emmett gets an excuse to be stupid jealous mm-hmm. over a man who sends her flowers with a thank you. Right. And I did feel like it was a little bit unstated gay stereotype. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree that I think you were supposed to read Charles as being gay. Right. And that was supposed to make Emmett's jealousy even more of a joke. That is an interesting way of looking at it that I don't think I had considered. So that was, it, I think it just, it screamed 2004 to me. Which is fair, since this book was published in 2004. I think. But, you know, given the opportunity, Jane Castle might rewrite that section. But possibly. But every time Charles was on the page or used as a plot device, I got a little cringy. Sure. We already broached this topic, but um, I found this book pretty sexy for a Ca- Jane Castle I think fundamentally magic erections are a fun concept. Right. I mean, you look, magic erections are hilarious. Especially when, you know, you really need to control them and you just can't. But it becomes like a commentary on self-control. Right. I mean, that, that's, that is what magical erections are. They are all a commentary on self-control. But they also usually end up being pretty sexy, even for authors that are uncomfortable with it, because you've made magical erections a plot point. You better do something with it. Right. Yes. And anyway, the fa- the whole fact that it was the wedding night, the wedding night was interrupted. He wanted the wedding night to be perfect. And then he realizes that I don't have to be perfect with her because 
she loves me the way I am. Like the whole thing. She wanted to marry me for me. And then he finds out she wanted to marry him to save his life. And But that's the conflict for him, you know. Anyway, yeah. it's fun. Plus, it was sex in a hallway in front of a mirror. Yeah. No, it was it was a very hot scene that happened very early in the conflict, both in the book and in the relationship. This scene, to me, was out of place in the text. It was great, but out of place in the text. Like, you didn't do anything from there. You really didn't develop their relationship further. Yeah, the. I mean, I don't know. Uh, this is going to be our commentary every time we review a Jane Castle slash Jane Ancrance, which... I think we're going to stop doing from now on. Not Amanda Quick, though, for the record. Yeah, not Amanda Quick. We will continue to review her now and then. Um, is that I just really, I enjoy them. I think they're fun. For me, they're very escapist and just very enjoyable, at, especially when considered as a continuum of this author's work. Yeah. Whereas I, I think I feel like this book in particular they're romantically not on the same page from the moment he realizes her desire to get married was to save him. They never really talk about their relationship again until he comes to save her. And the stress of that moment leads them both to say, I love you. And then everything is resolved from there. Yeah. Like, I don't think either. I, I don't, this is just not my genre. Sure. I think I needed this to either be more full throatedly a romance novel or to try a little harder to make sense. <laughs> well guys if you made it through this episode thank you so much for listening if you're enjoying the podcast you can check us out on our website on wordpress where you can find a full library that's searchable of our archive which at this point is over 200 episodes long uh, and we're also on instagram and goodreads at plotris and we we never mentioned this but you can also send us an email at plotris at gmail.com bye